Welcome to In the Foreground, Conversations on Art and Writing. I am Carol Fowler, your host and the Director of the Research and Academic Program at the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts. This episode is part of a mini-series on sound, in which Caitlin Woolsey, our postdoctoral fellow and also an expert in histories of sound, media, and 20th century art, speaks with scholars and artists whose work explores the intersections of sound, media, and art history. I am Caitlin Woolsey. In this episode, I speak with Robin James, an associate professor of philosophy at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte, whose work explores the intersections of pop music, sound studies, feminism, and race. Throughout our conversation, Robin critiques theoretical approaches that idealize sound as neutral or reparative, but in so doing, reproduce hegemonic, neoliberal, and biopolitical projects. The way that we organize society also manifests in the way we organize sound, right? The the relations among people become relations among sounds that are perceived in terms of analogous gendered and raced relations. Well, thank you so much for joining me, uh, Robin. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast and I just have a chance to speak with you a little bit more about your work. We usually start by opening it up um, just to ask you a little, to speak a little bit about how you might begin to describe your kind of intellectual or creative formation. Great. Thanks. Um, I'm delighted to be here and thank you so much for the kind invitation to, to talk a little bit about my work. Um, so I guess um it just kind of started when I was a kid. I was I was your typical band nerd, and I became a music major in college. I thought I was going to be a conductor. But then uh, I started taking music theory classes, and I realized, oh, this is what I like about, about music. I like analyzing it and breaking it down and, and interpreting it in that way. And around that time, um, like I remember this is um, – Right when I was starting to take more advanced theory classes, I was also enrolled in deductive logic. And, you know, so it's the same sorts of thinking in music theory and philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really, really where I got my start. And I did a, I did this undergraduate project because um, I noticed, I must have been a junior in college or something. I'm like, ooh, atonality, the, the sort of abandonment of uh, absolute rules and existentialism, they're happening around the same time. What's up with that, right? And so I wanted to mm-hmm. just sort of explore um, the connections, um, among sort of, uh, philosophical ideas at a particular moment in history and the, the kind of music and the, the ideas that informed the music at the time. So, um, I went to grad school in philosophy cause I couldn't decide, did I want to go into music? Did I want to go into gender studies? And I was like, well, I can do all of that in philosophy, right? Philosophy is all encompassing. So I did that. Um, and then I was really lucky, um, I was at DePaul University in Chicago at a time where the faculty were pretty much open to anything, right? Mm -hmm. So I had come in, I came in just as Graham Harmon, the object-oriented ontology guy, was leaving, right? So they were really open to, the faculty were really open to new, unusual stuff. And I was kind of the odd duck, right? I'm like, I'm kind of a music theorist. I'm kind of a gender studies scholar. I'm kind of a philosopher. Mm -hmm. But uh, my mentor there, Tina Chanter, she works on like feminism and film theory. 
And mm-hmm. um, she's like, I don't get what you're doing with the music, but I can see that it's important, right? It's, I, <laughs> I sort of get enough what's going on to to support you in doing that. So I, I was really lucky to not have people who were trying to boundary police me mm-hmm. um, as a student and really sort of discipline me. And they, they just kind of let me figure out what I had to say, regardless of um, its legibility within predefined boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an approach I've really valued and tried to, you know, keep doing in my own work, but also um, adopt with my own students. Mm. It's so interesting to me, too, that you sort of had the prescience as an undergrad or as a graduating undergrad to see the, like, the capaciousness of philosophy to kind of be a space in which you could engage with these different you know, traditionally distinct disciplinary categories. Because I feel like so often when people think philosophy, they see it as this sort of narrow, bounded academic um, discipline or silo. And Well, I think, I think that typical perception is correct because mainstream academic philosophy is very interested in boundary policing. But yeah. I, um, the program uh, at my undergraduate institution at Miami in Ohio, um, it was really pluralistic, Right. So um, it uh, included a lot of the sort of um, minor traditions in philosophy. Right. So continental applied philosophy, American philosophy, mm-hmm. feminist philosophy. So I I sort of got a too rosy picture <laughs> of the field. <laughs> right. My undergraduate uh, department was so great, um, unlike the rest of the field. But I, I was just lucky to be in the right kinds of places. And mm-hmm. um, I was also lucky uh, to end up uh, as an assistant professor in, a, in an applied philosophy department where they were mm-hmm. similarly not interested in boundary policing in the way that many disciplines are, but especially philosophy can be. So I've just been very lucky to find places throughout my academic career that's let me be the best I can be regardless of, of those disciplinary boundaries. Mm -hmm. And just to step back to something you said a few minutes ago, I'm curious to like, what was that experience like of navigating, you know, being in a graduate program where you had support, but maybe not um, sort of faculty or interlocutors who are particularly steeped in the kind of work that you were trying to do? How did you sort of, I mean, you had the space to pursue those questions or interests, but how did you kind of navigate that? I did a lot of reading on my own. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I kind of, there was uh, one faculty member in the department who did, he wasn't really involved in popular music studies, the subfield, but like he wrote liner notes for the yes box set and, um, you know, uh, wrote a book on, uh, rock aesthetics sort of within the philosophical tradition. So I had, I had some guidance, but I really just did a lot of reading. Like I read, uh, I was in grad school in the early 2000s and that's right when the sort of first wave of feminist popular music studies scholarship by people mm-hmm. like Norma Coates and Gail Wald was really starting to come out. So I just devoured that and kind of, uh, did a lot of reading outside of class. Um, <laughs> and, and I sort of, like I tr- tried going to various, you know, like the American Society for Aesthetics or, you know, tried to figure out where I fit in. And I learned a lot of places that I didn't fit in. But in the sort of once I had travel money as an assistant professor <laughs> I, and I could go to other conferences and, and things like that, like I, I, I found that like a, a really good home for me 
was popular music studies and I asked in US um, and right around that time too. So I started on the tenure track in 2006. That's when Sounding Out, um, mm -hmm. the Sound Studies publication, um, started to be published around then. And I, I read that and I'm like, oh, here's people working on sound and gender and race. Like these are my people. Mm -hmm. So um, I had to, I had to just kind of explore on my own, but fortunately there were other people out there. I might've felt alone in philosophy or alone in my department, but there were, there were people that wanted to ask the same kind of questions that I wanted to ask. No, I was just curious. Cause I feel like there's a way in which um, like someone could enter into sound studies, knowing almost nothing about music and continue to work in a way that more or less section like sort of cordons off music and especially popular music as a whole different kind of category. And so one thing that's interesting to me about your, your work and your scholarship is the way in which um, the implications and the kind of like theoretical stakes are much broader about sort of sound writ large, but that you like that you read sort of do close reading of songs and, and music in a very kind of object specific way that I think is akin to how art historians approach mm -hmm their work. And so I'm, I'm just interested in that kind of, um, the interaction between the, the two sort of spheres, which as you say, are, you know, intertwined. So. Yeah. And, and that might just come from my methodological orientation as a theorist. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I got to think about that a lot last year when I was teaching in the music department, um, in music studies, uh, you're either a historian, uh, an analyst, or an ethnographer, and all the classes and the curricula sort of assume those are the three dominant methods. But as a theorist, I'm like, but the questions I'm asking are conceptual. And I, so I think that mm -hmm. that layer of the conceptual is the driving layer in all my work, because I'm a philosopher. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I think um, one of the bad habits of academic philosophy is we often, or it is not always looked down upon to sort of theorize without an archive and just sort of on the basis of thought experiments and things like this, right? But um, I see popular music as a as an archive or a text that I can closely read to have actual evidence mm -hmm. to argue with, right? Like I don't have to think about a trolley problem and make hypotheses based on my own very narrow experience of the world as a cis white woman in the US, right? I can, mm -hmm. you know, analyze songs that draw on experiences that reflect my own, but that are also very unreflective of my own, right? And have a sort of, right. kind of hard evidence that I can bring to philosophical thinking that um, isn't always there. One of the things that gets me really frustrated um, about the way people talk about music and sound is they seem to romanticize it. Oftentimes it's lately, it's been treated by white Western theorists as like inherently reparative. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, I think that just covers over the way that sound and music um, also carry with them and are perceived through the same um, oppressive and limited uh epistemic and aesthetic frameworks as, as any of the other, uh, arts are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that critique that you've, you know, articulated in different writings is something that's drawn me to your work. Um, it does seem like there's been, maybe not so much now, but in, in the past been a kind of move to see sound as somehow this privileged site, like, oh, it was lo long overlooked. And now it's this kind of privileged space to, 
um, to think anew in a way that that doesn't seem to take into account the kind of historical uh, reality and sort of contingencies of music and sound. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, one of the things I've talked about uh, in my own work is how there's, you can sort of um, kind of see a kind of historical parallel between um, kind of popular feminist approaches to feminism, right? So at one point in the last 20 years, feminism became broadly socially acceptable, right? Mm-hmm. And this gives us, you know, like girl boss, lean in sort of stuff, right? This is the same moment when um, people like new materialist theorists are saying vibration, vibration can repair mm-hmm. what text and visual representation uh, have damaged both sort of politically and ontologically in, in Western philosophy, right? So there's a, and this is, you can see that parallel because uh, sound has been feminized in European philosophy. I mean, you definitely see this in Deleuze, for mm-hmm. example, right? Um, where uh, he and Guattari talk about, you know, becoming music and becoming woman, but they get that from Nietzsche, right? So there's this long tradition of feminizing sound. So it's it's interesting to me that right at the moment, we sort of see this neoliberal recuperation of of white femininity and white feminism, we also see this academic recuperation of sound as other, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I talk about that in the sonic episteme, but that's that's all. That was actually one of the things that first led me to kind of suspect or question uh, the the effects of that of that sort of um, approach. It wasn't until I started reading stuff by like Elizabeth Groves and Christoph Cox that. I, I really saw sort of people arguing that that you know theorizing on the basis of sound or resonance or whatever was both sort of recuperative and reparative, right? It, right. Mm-hmm. So it sort of restored something that was lost to philosophy or theory, and it um, uh, also repaired an injustice, right? Mm. Um, and I think I think the sort of aha moment when I was reading Chaos Territory Art, and I was like the musical terms are all wrong here. <laughs> so something else is going on, mm. right? Um, mm-hmm. What's motivating this? Cause it's not, this is a sort of stereotype about music or resonance um, that she's appealing to. So, so what's motivating the, the sort of massaging of, of resonance to mean, mm. to mean this, I think. Um so it was definitely like my background in music that sort of led me to read these texts in this way, but it didn't, the idea really didn't emerge until probably I'm going to say early 2010s, I think. Um, yeah. Cause I also, I was reading Atali, Atali's noise and he makes this claim, uh, that the techniques used by uh, mid-century avant-garde composers like Cage um, are the same, they follow the same laws as the laws of acoustics. I was like, they follow the same laws as the laws of acoustics, which are also analogous to uh, the market mechanisms of Mm -hmm. neoliberalism, right? So I was like, hmm, the laws of acoustics are analogous to neoliberal markets. Okay. Right. So that was, 
I was like, that mm-hmm. claim seems odd, but I was also interested in exploring like the extent to which that claim could be true. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and it is to the extent that like statistics are sort of measurements of frequencies, right? You're measuring rates and things like that. So there's, there's some analogy there. Um, and I think that's one of the things that leads people um, to, to like sonic concepts and metaphors, right? Cause in this very mathematically structured and governed world, um, those sonic metaphors provide us qualitative understandings of very, very abstract mm-hmm. math in, in pop culture and in the corporate sphere. There's a lot of this trafficking in sonic metaphors to talk about, um, data analytics and things like that. Just to, to take a little bit of a step sure. back. Um, so in, in the sonic episteme and in other writing, um, you level this critique of sonic materialism or what's sometimes been referred to. And I think you've referred to as a sort of what's seen as an ontological turn within sound studies or people who are writing about sound. Um, so I'm, for listeners who may not be familiar with these debates um, or these different approaches, um, I think it might be helpful if you're willing to just sure. share a little bit about sort of what you see as these sort of the stance that you're critiquing and then kind of how, yeah, how your critique emerges from that in, in terms of um, resisting a reading of sound as a, as matter or as a kind of truth or as a kind of way of knowing in some sort of privileged form. Sure. So um, over the last 20 or so years in various fields in the humanities, there's been a move to say, uh, you could even either frame it in terms of something like European modernity or the 90s, you know, theory in the 90s. Take your your object of choice, choice here. Usually it's Judith Butler, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, privileges uh, visual and textual representation as a sort of epistemic and ontological approach to theorizing, right? And mm-hmm. supposedly uh, vision and text are sort of dematerializing. They're sort of forms of abstraction that are purely sort of cultural or metaphysical or however you want to frame it, right? So there's this idea that we, theory has somehow distanced us from stuff and we need Mm -hmm. to get back to the stuff, right? Um, And one of the ways it has been proposed that we get back to the stuff is through things like sound or vibration or, you know, Karen Barad calls it diffraction, but that's also just, it's a form of vibration, Um, Mm -hmm. Right. So supposedly sound and vibration is, or Elizabeth Groves calls it resonance, right? Will get us back to the material stuff. It will put us back in contact and back in touch with the things that whatever theory of the past has distanced us from. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the view that, that I'm critiquing. What I argue is that, um, Sound here is um, a figure for the excluded other, right? And that what um, what all of these um, these sort of vibrational or resonant theoretical approaches are trying to do is something that's actually uh, it goes all the way back to to people like Rousseau and Kant, right? There's this idea that the practice of theory, right? i.e. the practice of white masculinity, 
requires us to distance ourselves from embodied receptivity and feeling, right? So in order to get that back, right, but yet still be a white dude and not be like a woman or a black person, I have to um, kind of appropriate some feminized or non-whitened attributes, right? Um, so Rousseau talks about this in terms of um, uh, the sort of uh, the the passion-driven languages of uh, East Asia, right? Um, Nietzsche talks about this in terms of the feminine, right? So there's this long-standing tradition uh, among white Western thinkers of saying, oh, the practice of theorizing is disembodying and dispassionate. How do I get those things back? And I think mm-hmm. here in the sort of, you know, vibrational resonant turn in theory, sound is just the sort of figure for for that thing, right? And sound is sort of operating in place of more explicitly, more explicitly raced and gendered things like femininity, like uh, East Asian or languages like blackness, right? So uh, it's an old problematic move just made in terms that sound slightly less, slightly less problematic. Um, mm-hmm. And another part of the problem is that um, these sonic theories do depart from, they are different from sort of more traditional uh, modernisms, right, or in terms of theory, right, theoretical modernisms. But in in the same way that neoliberalism generally sort of upgrades classical liberalism for terms and techniques that are more compatible with 21st century realities, um, that's what this sonic term, turn is also doing. So one of the things that's happening is um, theorists are using, they're not necessarily doing this intentionally, but the effect mm-hmm. is the theories people develop of sort of resonant ontology or vibrational ontology produce the same relations among theory and theorists that neoliberalism and biopolitics and these quantitative modes of governance produce among people. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, um, many people, including uh, Sarah Ahmed and Zakia Iman Jackson have talked about how a lot of these sort of, um, uh, materialist theories uh, completely overlook uh, work by scholars of color, right? Mm-hmm. There's So there's the same kind of marginalization of scholarship from non-white, non-Western traditions that you had in modernity, right? It's just mm-hmm. sort of this sort of sonic theories claimed to be more inclusive because we're breaking down ba- barriers between human and non-human and getting to matter itself. Right. Right. While at the same time saying, well, black studies isn't quite good enough <laughs> to do that. Right. Um, so that's, that's the other kind of level of the critique is that the effect of uh, these uh, sonic uh, or resonant or vibrational theories is they're sort of reproducing in new terms the same old relations of, of privilege and inequality that have plagued uh, Western theories since its inception. Mm. And is this sort of the, is your, is your understanding of these, this sort of re- replication of these relations um, sort of related to, I know you've written um, on sort of sonic 
cyber cyber feminist mm-hmm. practice thinking about patriarchy as being not just among relations of people but sort of patriarchy is also being a relation among sounds um could you speak a little bit about that and i mean i know that's some of your earlier work sort of pre sonic episteme but yeah um well so like one thing i'm always interested in my in my work is how um our perception and valuing of sounds happens through racialized and gendered terms, right? Um, So Jenny Stover talks about this in terms of having like a listening ear, right? Instead of like a a gaze, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, um, you know, so for example, um, one of the things um, I've talked about um, in, in past work, this would be the, the resilience and melancholy book is how um, uh, gendered norms about women's resilient overcoming or leaning in, right, get depicted in uh, compositional structures and musical gestures, right. So there's um, there's ways that um, basically the the way that we organize society also manifests in the way we organize sound, right. The, the relations among people become relations among sounds that are perceived in terms of analogous gendered and raced relations. Mm. What what does that look like, like within objects or within reception or within like the circulation of, of sounds or, I mean, beyond the kind of um, the sort of scholarly academic replication of certain kinds of theorizing and mm-hmm. relations? Yeah. So one of the things I've been working on recently is um, the sort of, current phenomenon of lo-fi steady beats or chill music. So like uh, Taylor Swift's uh, cardigan single would be like her take on this, this genre. Right. So there's a, there's numerous YouTube channels devoted to what are called lo-fi steady beats. It's usually lo-fi hip hop steady beats. Um, and the chilled cow one with the, the image of the girl with a ponytail studying, that's kind of the most famous one, but um a couple weeks ago, Pepsi released its own YouTube lo-fi beats streaming channels. <laughs> and and um, in the last UK election, the Tory party posted to their official YouTube channel, uh, lo-fi Boris wave to get Brexit done to, right? So there's this broad cultural phenomenon of the, these sort of lo-fi, uh, and lo-fi usually means like sparse kind of uh, you know, sort of snare and rimshot percussion uh, over some kind of very low key music, right? So in the in the chilled cow, it's usually that sort of you know sparse uh, percussion over what you might otherwise think of as smooth jazz, mm-hmm. right? So it's mm-hmm. and it's explicitly billed for productivity, right? To study, relax, to um, and the like the the pe- the Pepsi channel is great because the lyrics to these songs say things like Pepsi will help you get work done because it has caffeine. (laughs) Right. So really, really subtle. (laughs) So what I'm interested in about this is, um, so why is this, this very particular idea of productivity as being focused and calm, something that we start to see, um, even before the 2016 election, right? Um, mm-hmm. We start to see it, you know, so uh, back in the early 2010s, uh, pop music was very maximalist. If you remember YOLO, you only live once, right? That sort of thing. So there was a 
big bubble of maximalism early in the decade. But even um, 2014, 2015, there's this turn toward chill. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in it's like, so why is this very low key, basically updated smooth jazz being seen as something to aspire to and, and to use for productivity? And so what I'm right. And this is also the, the kind the kind of music that Spotify uh, really pushes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and Liz Pelly's work has talked about this. So what I'm hypothesizing is that, um, you know, in a world, we see this even uh, with more clarity today, right, where, where we're all supposed to just sort of be left to ourselves to overcome whatever challenges we face, right? The status of being able to merely just sort of uh, remain productive and not have to sort of uh, spectacularly overcome huge obstacles, right, is actually a status claim of having high status, Right. I'm a high status person because I don't have these enormous challenges in my life. Enormous challenges usually caused by thing like things like uh, gender base and disability. Right. So I have already been so well uh, vested and so privileged that I can, I can just, you know, I, I, I can remain productive. Right. And, you know, just mm-hmm. sort of uh, make sure that my human capital, uh, retains the value that's already been invested in it. I don't have to sort of pull myself up from my bootstraps um, right. to, to do that sort of uh, spectacular achievement. Right. So, um, so I think this music aesthetic is indicative of sort of how status relationships are negotiated among sort of race, race and gendered uh groups, if, if that makes sense. So, so that's a kind of example of kind of how I'm using sound and music to think about, um, you know, sort of more pervasive and underlying uh, political structures or political discourses. To kind of circle back a little bit to the sonic, your recounting of some of this, what's at stake for you and the argument you're making or the critiques you're making in the sonic episteme and, and much of your other work. Um, sort of if we, what do you, can you describe a little bit how you see, like sort of what are the avenues of possibility within kind of thinking about music and sound that seem, that that would allow us to not just continue to replicate these same, kind, same kinds of relations? Or what, yeah. would, what would be alternative models or alternative um, sort of approaches or ways of, ways of thinking and listening? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Because part of part of what I do in the book is say, okay, so like, here's some ways of theorizing with and through sound that I find not very helpful. Um, And in part, I find them in large part, I find them not very helpful, because they reproduce the same relations of inequality they claim to solve. And some of those relations include things like academic disciplinarity, right, or the privileging of hard sciences over uh, arts and humanities, right? So I think the kinds of ways that sound can be used theoretically and artistically um, that would be productive would be in ways that um, don't support or aren't easily legible to things like disciplinary logics or policing um, mm-hmm. in ways that so in ways that wouldn't um, sort of reaffirm 
the project's value in the terms that the neoliberal academy recognizes, right? So it's it's about sort of creating other systems of value and ways of relating, right? Mm-hmm. That that um that aren't just reproductions of the you know sort of patriarchal racial capitalist idea that um that uh theorizing or philosophizing is about laboring over the you know sort of natural or illegible thing and thus making it legible and enclosable as a kind of private property or value or wealth or something like that right so it's Mm -hmm. um uh finding new ways of um practicing theory or or scholarship or creative practice right um Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that can look a lot of different ways. And I talk about some of the ways scholars in Black Sound Studies have proposed mm-hmm. this, um, but I think there are plenty of other ways. I'm thinking about this, those kind of different ways of working within these kind of disciplinary boundaries or machinations. I mean, do you think about how do you think about the archive in relation to sort of sound and music and these these new possibilities in art history? I feel like the archive is often this is often a sort of conceptual and methodological and practical um, consideration, and um, but also a kind of space for uh, for intervention or for reflection. Like, so I'm just curious if that's something that you think about, that you've thought about at all, or... Maybe I guess my first response would be um, thinking about how some things are seen as more legitimate objects of study than others, right? And the mm-hmm. kinds of things that you know, kind of building off of some of what Christina Sharp talks about, right? The kinds of things that have been preserved as archives and the, you know, what's missing, right? We only have archives of certain kinds of things, right? Um, So how do we, how do we try to grapple with the implications of things for which we don't have either archives of any sort or quote unquote proper archives, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think, you know, 30 years ago, popular music was one of those things, right? Um, when popular music studies was, you know, barely a discipline, right? It was seen as like, oh, it's, and, and you know, you still get musicologists who <laughs> don't see popular music as a proper object of study. Um, but I think, I think it, those are the battle lines, mm-hmm. actually, right? Like mm-hmm. what is seen as a legitimate archive and what is not seen as a legitimate archive? in fall 2020 um, and we're recording this interview, I'm curious sort of what, what are you listening to that is engaging or interesting or giving you hope or pause for thought? Are there certain, or reading? It doesn't have to just be listening, reading, oh. looking at. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess there's two kinds of things. Um, I've just been, I mean, I always listen to a lot of techno, but I've just been listening to a lot of dance music just because I need energy and I need to feel like we're going to be together in music venues <laughs> again <laughs> at some point. So just trying to like, um, and music that's very physical, right? Kind of the opposite of that chill. I'm the Pepsi chill, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just music that's physical, um, mm-hmm. and makes me move. Um, but I've also been, um, well, like, so for example, I actually think, uh, even, right as the pandemic was hitting, the pop charts were really taking a sort of dance pop turn, 
right? So there's The Weeknd and Lady Gaga and Doja Cat. So I've been really like happy about that, right? Dance music is kind of back. But I've also been listening to, um, I'm working on this project about um, the the philosophy of this old modern rock radio station, uh, WOXY. Hmm. Um, and so I've been digging into their year-end charts um, from 1984 to 2009. So I've just been listening to a lot of old stuff, um, mm. both old stuff that I remember because I listened to it, uh, but um, some of the like early 80s charts, I was I was in like second grade when some of these, you know, in 85. Yeah. Um, <laughs> learning about kind of how new wave or modern rock was experienced by the people at the time and how it's so very different from like what you hear on the 80s nights in clubs or what's on the like new wave Apple music list. So sort of seeing uh, kind of how the orthodox narr- narrative of like modern rock or new wave right. uh, got shaped has been, has been really interesting. Um, so listening, listening to old stuff, both that I remember and not remember. Yeah. I'm kind of curious if you have, I think when I sent you the questions yeah. earlier, I, I had included a question about if there are things that you think sort of art history or philosophy but art history of the arts sort of get wrong about music or sound. But I also feel like maybe it's not fair to ask you to comment on a kind of disciplinary framework that you're not you know, necessarily within, but I didn't know if you had any thoughts about, about that. Um, I mean, I guess a couple things. Um, Cause you talked about like, do I see, do I, how do I understand differences among like sound and music and whatever? And I think, um, I think those are purely institutional, right? So in, in philosophical aesthetics, there's this uh, term called the institutional definition of art, right? So art is whatever art institutions say it is, right? And I, I think from my own perspective, I think that's the only actual true definition of what art is. Right? It's the only one that captures uh, everything that one might mm-hmm. want to include under that term. And I think that's the true, that's true with sound and music, right? Like there is no objective difference between sound and music, right? It's, it's a purely institutional one. Um, mm-hmm. And, and the way sound or music or the difference between the two functions, it tells you really more about the institutions than it does anything about the work or the practice right. or the tradition. Um, so something in philosophy that's interesting, um, and this is probably why I'm uncomfortably within the field as someone who does sound. So if you look at the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is like the sort of well-respected open access philosophy resource, it's like mm-hmm. art store, but for philosophy. Right? <laughs> um, the The entry on sound treats it purely as a matter of philosophy of mind and perception. Right. So the sort of idea of sound that one would have in sound studies, right? Like sound is a, a dimension of reality right. that you can use to talk about many different things, right? It's not just something we perceive, but sound is organized and organizes people. Mm-hmm. Uh, philosophers don't think about sound in that way, right? So there's this huge gulf between what goes on in mainstream philosophy and with respect to sound and, and what happens in sound studies generally, um, which to me is frustrating because I think um, there's a lot of overlap 
uh, right? Like sound studies work that is sort of seen as centrally sound studies is philosophical, right? Like they're talking about Deleuze, but (laughs) (laughs) but philosophers don't sort of engage that work um, Mm -hmm. from our own disciplinary perspective to our, to our loss. It, I feels like, you know, with the kind of upswell of sort of interest in sound and sound studies over the last two decades, it's sort of surprising that it hasn't been kind of accounted for within philosophy, even though it's, but. Yeah. And I think that's, that's reflective though, that mainstream academic philosophy has always tried to ally itself with the hard sciences over the other humanities. And this is in part like, oh, the other humanities are getting um, less white and less male. (laughs) So rather than go in that direction, we will try to double down and ally ourselves with the disciplines that are still largely white and male. Um, Mm -hmm. thus the more sort of scientific understanding of sound is like cognitive rather than social or cultural. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Well, thank you so much. It's been a delight. Yeah. Thanks, Robin. Thank you for listening to In the Foreground, conversations on art and writing. For more information about this episode and links to the books, articles, and artworks discussed, please consult clarkart.edu slash rap slash podcast. This program was produced by Caitlin Woolsey, Samantha Page, and myself, with music by Light Chaser, editing by John Boutine, and additional support provided by Jesse Sintivan and Alice Matthews.